be seated. I invite you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word, the source and storehouse of all true and saving knowledge of the triumph God, and we will turn together to our passage for this morning and for the week to come, and it's Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. So Acts chapter 3, 11 through 26. And a couple weeks ago, we began to make that turn from Luke's narrative of the birth of the early church now to the life of the early church. Pentecost has happened. The, the 120 disciples have been gathered up in the upper room and the Holy Spirit has now descended upon them like a mighty wind and, and, and flames of fire sitting upon their head. And they go out. The 120 go out to share the gospel. And Peter stands up to boldly declare the gospel in front of thousands gathered in the temple courtyard for Pentecost. And that's the birth of the church, because what we see after that, at the end of, of chapter 2, is the church gathering together, beginning its life together in, in worship. So we've made that turn from, from the birth narrative now to the, to the life narrative of the early church. And that continued last week as we looked at the account of Peter and John going into the temple. As they were entering in, they see a, a lame man, a, a beggar. Who, who, is, who is begging for, for money to go out and, and get food. If you remember, Peter goes to him and says, I, I don't have silver or gold to give you, but I have something better. Stand up and walk now in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that sort of miracle and that sort of public display will get attention. And we will see that here in a moment as we read our passage together. As we prepare to read this, uh, I want you to keep in mind this question. What do Peter and John do in this narrative? What do they do as the crowds gather around them? Do they give that you know, old-fashioned, you know, triumphal wave and, and take pats on the back and go, yeah, we're, we're pretty good apostles. Because look at what we did here. Or do we find them giving... God all the glory for what he has done. Are they bold in praise for themselves? Or are they bold in their praise for the Lord? Keep that in mind as we come to God's word, as we read it here together in a few moments. Let's pray for our time together in his word. Lord, we are your people, and we're the people you have entrusted your faith to, and we are people of your word. So may we approach it by faith in you, faith that this is indeed the, 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 the source and storehouse of all true and saving knowledge of you. May we hear it as your word, may we understand it as your word, may we live by it as your word. We are told not just to be hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word. So help us to hear and to take action upon that conviction of your word. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. And we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power... Our own power, piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of, ja- of, of the God of Isaac, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, 
whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, to the time for restoring all the things that which, uh, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will rise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. We sometimes joke, but it's a joke that has some truth to it, that change can be a bad word. Change can be a bad word in the church. Change can be a bad word in our personal lives. Change can scare us. It can frighten us. It can make us hold on to our our human traditions even tighter. It can make us dig our feet into the ground. Change can scare us. But change isn't always bad. Matter of fact, we can think of times as as change being necessary in our lives. And there's times that change is good. And we see that here with Peter. We can go back to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we can remember at times what a mess Peter could be. He he was the the apostle out front. He was the spokesperson. But Peter also had a tendency to to speak before he thought. At one point, Jesus had to call him out to go so far as to say, get behind me, Satan. We said before, we don't want to hear Jesus say that to us, do we? We can think of of Jesus, I'm sorry, of Peter with his vehement denial of Jesus three times, the third time, invoking a curse from God down upon him that he does not know this Jesus. And even after the resurrection, even after Peter's the one who ran to the tomb, even after Peter's the one who jumps out of the boat to swim to shore to get to Jesus more quickly, do you remember around that campfire eating breakfast what Jesus does? He asked Peter, will you feed my sheep? And he asked him, Three times the same question, a very direct question about Peter. We go through the Gospels and we find that Peter doesn't always seem to have his act all the way together. 
We get to the end of the Gospel of John. And we turn to Acts. And we find Peter again very quickly. But Peter is a new man. He's a changed man. He's now changed for the better. He's the one who stands up among the 120 followers in the upper room and and gets them on the path of choosing a replacement for Judas. He's the one who stands up among the thousands in the temple courtyard to first answer the claims that the 120 are drunk of wine. And and what he says in in, in Old Testament ways is he says, no, they're not drunk of wine. They're drunk with the Spirit. They're They're not filled with wine. They're now filled with the Spirit of Christ. And then this same Peter goes on to give a bold gospel presentation. Peter is a changed man. He's changed for the better. He's gone from denying Jesus to declaring Jesus. And the change we find in Peter is that he now has gospel boldness. He has gospel boldness. This this former fisherman, this one who denied Jesus, this one who abandoned Jesus at the cross, we find now in the book of Acts, is bold in his love of the gospel. He's bold in his presentation of the gospel. He's the definition of gospel boldness. He he, he embodies what Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Twice, in the book of Acts, we find Peter standing up in front of thousands of Jews, not ashamed of the gospel. Preaching on the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Peter is bold for the gospel. But he didn't wake up one morning and said, Today is the day. I'm tired of messing around. I'm tired of being an amateur. Today is the day I'm going to be bold for Jesus. I'm going to be bold in the gospel and I'm going to be bold with the gospel. Think with me through the chronology of Peter's faith and life. Jesus comes to Peter to call him to follow him. Calls him to follow him to be followers of Jesus, or to be be a follower of Jesus, to be a fisher of men. It's Peter who learns from Jesus. It's Peter who, along with the other disciples in the upper room, is now filled with the Spirit of Christ. See, Peter's gospel boldness is not his own doing. He didn't decide to have it one day. It's the work of Christ. It's the, it is Christ at work in Peter, and it's Peter now living by Christ. That gospel boldness can only come from Jesus. As we will see here in a few moments, the main emphasis of gospel boldness is that all attention is pointed to Christ. The, the, the embodiment of gospel boldness is that it always pointed to Jesus. I was recently made aware of this hymn written by a man I have no idea about, A.A. A. Whittington. I've never heard this hymn before. But listen to the first stanzas. Not I, but Christ, be honored, loved, exalted. Not I, but Christ, be seen, be known, be heard. Not I, but Christ, and every look and action. Not I, but Christ and every thought and word. I don't know the title of that hymn. If I were to title it, I would call it Gospel Boldness. Because what it is to be bold for the gospel, isn't it? 
not I, but Christ. And that's the boldness we see with Peter here from the very beginning of this narrative. The lame man has been healed. He's now leaping around. He's walking. He's, he's praising God. But now Luke says he's, he's clinging to Peter and John. So we have this vision that he's gone from jumping around and being crazy to now holding on to their robes. He's not going to let these two disciples of Jesus out of his sight. He wants to be as close as he can to these guys who have shown him the authentic Christianity we talked about last week. And now a crowd is gathering. And Luke gives us the detail that it's, it's happening on the portico called Solomon's. That was a porch built by Herod the Great along the east wall of the, of the temple. And we go back to the Gospels, we find that Jesus taught there on occasion as well. Peter and John understand now what is happening. They realize that this crowd that has gathered want to understand what's happened to this man. They, they know this man. They've walked by him. They've seen him lame and, and, and begging for money. They may have given him money and they may have felt sorry for him as they've gone out their life and gone on to the temple to worship. And so now they want to know what, what's happened to this man who's now acting like a toddler who's been on a three-day sugar high. And you notice the very first thing Peter does. He says, not I, but Christ. Look at verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though it's by our own power of piety, we've made him walk. God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Not I. Christ. They, they must have been tempted. Peter and John must have been tempted when the crowd got around to go, yeah, we, we, we did this. Just, be a humble brag. We, we, we did Jesus did it through us. God did it through us, but, but he used us to do it. We're pretty good at this. That's not what he does, is it? Not I, but Christ. Rabbinic tradition spoke of individuals who had such exceptional piety that God was obligated to grant their prayers. They were so good that God could never say no to them. Peter and John don't go that route. They're quick to deflect attention from themselves. And they insist that Jesus was the agent of this healing. It wasn't about them. It was about Jesus. It wasn't about what they said. It was about Jesus. Their gospel boldness pointed to Jesus. It's not what I've done. Peter said, no, 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 this isn't about us. This is about Jesus, not I, but, but, but Christ. And that's gospel boldness. Gospel boldness isn't, isn't about how bold I can be, how loud I can be, how emphatic I can be. It's about Jesus. Just like we see here. We haven't done anything. That's the that's gist of Peter's message. We, we, guys, we haven't done anything. This is all Jesus. Not I, but Christ. That's gospel boldness. Not about me, but about thee, O Christ. And in this gospel boldness, Peter then takes them on an Old Testament lesson. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Peter immediately invokes the Old Testament patriarchs to underline the historic lineage of Pentecost. 
And what he's saying here is that what has, what's happening here has been prophesied from way back in the Old Testament. That, that the Spirit descending, that, that the Spirit of Christ descending upon them and enabling them to go out and be bold the gospel, that's been prophesied from even all the way back to Moses is what he says. And, and so the point that Peter is making here is that all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all the patriarchs, they pointed to Jesus. Each in their own way had gospel boldness and always pointing to Jesus. So Peter, in the boldness for Christ, is giving them the key to understand the Old Testament. That their God is a covenantal God and that God had covenant to his people's salvation through faith. How's that salvation through faith? It's in Jesus Christ, his son, who is our representative and sin bearer. He's given him a hermeneutical lesson. All the Old Testament. God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus from Genesis to Malachi. Because in the Old Testament, God continually foreshadows his final and full salvation in his incarnate son. It was pointing to Jesus who had now freely given his spirit upon the church. So what Peter's telling them is they have been reading and understanding the Testament all wrong because they have missed it was about Jesus. I am blind as a bat. My eyesight's so bad that they don't have numbers for it. That's a humble brag, isn't it? So when I go for an eye exam, they have to do what's, what's called the, the fingers or whatever. I don't know what they call it. They use their fingers and they hold up their fingers and see how far away they can get from me before I can't really see how many fingers they're holding up. It's a few feet. And if I don't wear my glasses, I, I can't see a thing. So if you see me driving without my glasses, get off the road. And for thousands of years, the Jews had not put on the lens of Jesus and they had misunderstood the Old Testament. See, the gospel boldness is understanding this. And all the Bible is about Jesus. We've heard it said before, the most important words you read in the Bible are ones printed in red in the Gospels. That's not true. Because every word in the Bible, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, is about Jesus. So when we read and study the Old Testament, we're not to think that these are antiquated, non-relevant stories and rules. Those are, for the, those are for the Jews thousands of years ago who were eating dust as they were walking. No, all the Old Testament is there to point us to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. From Genesis to Malachi, we are pointing to Jesus, and there is nothing more relevant than that. And gospel boldness is understanding the Bible in this manner and reading it in that way. Not I, but Christ. In every word of scripture. And in this boldness, Peter then gets very personal. You delivered over. You denied in the presence of Pilate. You denied the Holy and Righteous One. You asked for murder to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Those are very emphatic yous, aren't they? You did this. You did this. You killed Jesus. How's that for a gospel presentation? How's that to stand in front of 
thousands of people and say, I'm here to tell you about Jesus because you killed him. Yet in that gospel boldness, that's exactly what Peter's doing, isn't he? He's calling sin, sin. He isn't sugarcoating it. He's not concerned about warm and fuzzies. He doesn't care about how they feel. He doesn't want them to go out and have a good day. He isn't offering them a, a, a loophole to make them feel better about themselves. No, he's saying you, personally, you, you did this. You were the ones responsible for the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, they're at the temple. And, and so we can safely assume that there were those gathered around who were responsible Maybe some of the Pharisees, some of the Sadducees, those who were there to, 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 to betray Jesus before Pilate. Maybe some of those who helped fashion the crown of thorns. They were there. They, they were very much having a finger pointed at them. But that wasn't everybody, was it? But the other people who were there are ones who had chosen to reject Jesus as the Messiah. Maybe some of those had been there that day at Calvary and they had lusted after his death. They were just as guilty. Peter says, you, you personally, you did this. And gospel boldness understands that this is true of us as well. Now, none of us are old enough to have been there when this happened. But we were there, weren't we? We didn't physically nail Jesus to the cross. But we nailed Jesus to the cross. We didn't physically shove the crown of thorns on his head. But we did. We didn't physically mock him and jeer him and spit on him. But we did. That's why one of our favorite hymns says this. Behold a man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. See, gospel boldness isn't looking at other people going, You really need Jesus. You really need Jesus. You're really bad. And you need Jesus. Gospel boldness is looking at the cross in faith and knowing that the old rugged cross on Calvary is there because of you and your sin, my sin, my sin upon his shoulders. It was my sin. My sin is the nails that held him there until it was accomplished. And in this personal you, Peter so faithfully preaches Christ. Jesus is at the heart of the Old Testament. And, and so Peter goes to Isaiah and he explains that Jesus is the fulfillment of the four servant passages. It's, it's what is echoed in Philippians 2.7. And what Peter is saying here is that although you are the ones who crucified him, you're the ones who killed him. He is the servant who has paid the ultimate sacrifice. He's the one who willingly died because this servant humbles himself to the point of the cross for you. You killed him so he could save you. He willingly went upon the cross so he can willingly die for your sins. Not I, but Christ. 
And Peter says all the Old Testament has pointed to this. And we get to verse 17. And Peter in that gospel boldness calls on everyone there to have faith and to repent of their sins. The Puritan Tom, Thomas Watson taught that faith and repentance are like two wings of a bird whereby we fly into heaven. If you take a wing off of a bird, can a bird fly? No. So faith and repentance go together. Like peanut butter and chocolate, peanut butter and jelly. It all goes together. Because faith is receiving and resting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he's offering the Gospels. And repentance is recognizing your sin for what it is and turning away from it to turn back to God. And we can only turn to God when we have faith. So a true Christian is one who will repent of their sins. We know there is true faith in our hearts and in our minds when we are willing to repent of our sins. Not just say, I've been saved. I, I, I went to Camp Bon Clarkin. Or, or, I raised my hand at VBS. Or I had a really nice Sunday one week. And, and now I'm saved and it doesn't matter. No, 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 no. It matters for them. And it matters for us. There is no faith without repentance. And there is no repentance without faith. So a true Christian is a Christian who will always be dying to their sins. Not calming their sins. Not treating their, their sins like their favorite child. A true Christian will always be dying of their sins. So Peter says here, for them, he says, look, you may have been ignorant about the implications of what you did, but you still need to have faith in Jesus and, and repent of your sins. And he says, then only then can they know the blessings of their, of their sins being blotted out, that they're no longer held against them, and that they can now be refreshed in Christ and, and soul and mind and heart. It's amazing to think that here's Peter standing and he's making eye contact with people he knew were physically and intimately responsible for crucifying his Jesus. And, and Peter is looking around and he's making eye contact with people that he had heard were standing at the foot of the cross and yelling out, Kill him! Kill him! And now Peter looks at him and says, Come to faith. Come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sins. That's gospel boldness, isn't it? To make such a call to such a people. And that same cry is made for us. Because we were once enemies of the living God. Ashamed, I hear my voice among the scoffers. And so the call is made for us as well to come to Jesus in faith and to repent of our sins. It's this gospel boldness that puts Jesus first above all else, not I, but Christ. And so as we prepare to close this morning, I want us to think about this aspect about gospel boldness. When we, when we think about this context, we may, we may think, okay, then this gospel boldness calls me to be like Peter. So let me run out somewhere where there's a group of people and, and, and to preach in this way. I think gospel boldness begins much closer to home. 
it begins with us choosing to say no to our sins. Even when we're tempted to think of sin as the right way, it's being bold enough to say no to it. Gospel boldness is, is parents saying no to children. It's interesting to read, to read experts, and you can sometimes put quotation marks around it, but there's a lot of, a lot of things being published and set out there that one of the greatest problems of, our, of the current generation of children is parents are not willing to say no to them. That, that parents in society have made the happiness of children their chief goal. What's the chief end of my children? It, it, it's to make them happy. And gospel boldness is say, learning to say no to our children. But it's also a saying no to the world. It doesn't take a genius for us to realize that the world really wants us to say yes to a lot of sins. And yes to a lot of heinous sins. But gospel boldness is saying no to them. No to them. Because when in gospel boldness we are saying no, we're now being enabled to say yes to Jesus. When we choose to say no to our sins, then we are now enabled to say yes to Jesus in our lives. If somebody were to call you a, a holy roller, probably wouldn't take it as a compliment, would you? Because there's a stigma attached with that term. We think of holy rollers, we think of, of, of uptight, legalistic people, right? Nobody wants to be a holy roller. But the Bible speaks very favorably of holiness. Several times, God says, be holy as I am holy. He is the holy God who sent the Holy Son so we may be filled with the Holy Spirit, so we may read the Holy Bible. And so when we choose to say no to our sins, so we can say yes to Jesus, then we are growing in holiness. The more we say yes to Jesus, then the more we're, we're growing to be like Jesus. And the nearer we come to Christ, the better we are. Holiness isn't a bad thing. Holiness means we're becoming more like Jesus. And if you have a problem with becoming more like Jesus, then it may be because you don't love Jesus. And when we say no to our children, it's so we can teach them to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you have it in your home. Maybe your parents did, your grandparents did. And I'm sure you've seen somebody, somewhere in somebody's home, a cross stitch that says, as for me and my house, what, do you remember? Anybody see that cross stitch? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A cross stitch there to remind ourselves as a family what we're to be doing is to serve the Lord. And when we teach our children... <laughs> That it's better to say yes to Jesus than to the world. That it's better to serve the Lord and find our happiness and satisfaction in Him than we are teaching them to faithfully serve the Lord. And I think something a number of Christian parents have forgotten is one day we're going to die. And we're going to stand in front of God and He's going to ask us, I have blessed you with these children, they were a blessing from me and I gave them to you. What did you do with them? Are we wanting to stand in front of God and go, I did everything I could to make them happy? My whole goal, from the time they were born to when I just kicked it, 
I just want to make him happy. Or do we want to stand in front of God and say, I did everything I could to raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And when we say no to the world, then we are saying yes to Jesus. And we're meaning what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. That's gospel boldness. And that's the boldness that changes us. We all have a history. And maybe in that history, there are sins you are known for. Sins that were a part of your identity. And what we see with what we see with Peter, we see throughout Scripture, is the gospel changes all that. Because now in Jesus, we die to the old self and we now live for the glory and joy of the Lord. So the question is this have you been changed? Those old sins that were a part of your identity, are they still a part of your identity? Or have you died to them? Is it Jesus first for you? Are you bold for the gospel? Because of the work of the gospel in your life. Are you a changed person? If not, maybe, maybe you just got better at hiding your sins. But if you're not changed, then it may be because you've never really been a Christian. You've just played the game. And that call to faith and repentance still stands. Receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation so you may die more and more to your sins. And we'll end with this. There's been a lot of talk in our leadership lately about church growth. Looking around at our situation in Winsboro and the world, talking about church growth. And you look out there, and again, you can find all sorts of experts who tell you the only way your church will grow is if you have a great children's ministry, or if you have a great youth ministry, or if you have a professional worship service, or if you have a pastor in skinny jeans, right? There's all sorts of ideas out there. How do we see the church growing here in the book of Acts? Through gospel boldness. What we are finding in the 21st century, people don't care about programs. What people care about is a church where there is authentic Christianity with authentic Christians. Where the gospel is boldly preached and boldly loved. Where Jesus is first and supreme in that church. That's the church people want to go to. Where there is gospel boldness. My prayer for us is that we be that sort of people. And we be that sort of church. For the glory of God. And for the good of Winsboro and Fairfield County. Let's pray together.